If you're trying to cut your imports of energy from Russia, the three levers you can pull, one is finding other sources of imports, one is producing more domestically, and the other is affecting demand. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we look at the ongoing impacts on energy markets due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Joining us is Ed Crooks, Vice Chair of the Americas for Wood McKenzie. He joins my colleague, Joseph Mikut, for a discussion around the sanctions on Russia and high prices across energy markets as a result. They also look at the developing conversation around energy security and how Europe and the United States, to some extent, are looking at how to diversify their energy portfolios and what this means for the future of the energy transition and for climate policy. Here's Joseph now to lead this conversation. Thank you for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thanks very much for having me on. So we're recording in mid-April 2022, and about six weeks ago, Russia invaded Ukraine and caused, I would say, a substantial amount of turmoil in already tight and challenged energy market. You wrote in early March that sanctions against Russia, which don't apply to energy, or at least didn't at the time, were already starting to impact energy flows. I think a really good place to start would be, what are we seeing now? And has Russia as a major energy exporter, despite financial pressure and despite a lot of pressure from corporations and governments in the West, have they been able to maintain energy exports and the associated financial flows? And when might we see those degrade, if at all? Well, just maybe to give a little bit of background before I get to where we are right now, it's important to think about Russia as being one of the world's most important energy suppliers. It is roughly the second largest oil producer. There are three big oil producers in the world, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. And it's the second largest gas producer after the United States. A very, very important supplier, roughly 11% also of the world's oil supply coming from Russia, about 35%, sometimes 40% of Europe's gas supply comes from Russia about 15% of Europe's coal, also a very important supplier of some other materials and metals, for instance, very important supplier of nickel. You may have noticed that kind of chaos in the nickel market we had soon after the invasion because of the importance of Russian supplies there. So it's a very big player in global energy. And as you say, the, the sanctions as they have been applied to Russia have largely left its energy exports unaffected. It's been a conscious decision on the part of many countries, and in particular, on the part of Europe to say, our economies are totally reliant on Russian energy. And as much as we absolutely abhor and are appalled by the invasion of Ukraine, we cannot take the damage that would be done to our economies if we just cut off all supplies of Russian energy. And so although there's been lots of other sanctions very important financial sanctions, particular restrictions on the Russian central bank, restrictions on Russian banks' use of SWIFT, which is the communication system used for uh, payments and so on. So sanctions against Russia across a wide range of sectors, but energy has not been particularly affected. So we saw the United States say, we're going to stop importing Russian oil and gas. That was a pretty symbolic move, symbolic in the sense of not having a great deal of substance behind it. It was a mostly symbolic move because the uh, US never exported a massive amount of Russian oil. It's pretty easy for the US to find other sources of oil and gas to replace Russian imports. 
So that was kind of a gesture on the part of the Biden administration, sent a signal about intent and the kind of, again, the attitude of the Biden administration towards the invasion of Ukraine was not particularly material in terms of the impact on Russia. Many other countries in the world have carried on buying Russian oil quite happily. India, China, other countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America do not feel the same compunction as the United States does about buying Russian oil and carried on buying it. And Europe, as I say, which is so totally uh, dependent on Russian gas, has continued to buy Russian gas. To bring things up to date, though, what has been happening is that we've seen quite a bit of what's called self-sanctioning. So we've seen companies of various kinds choosing not to buy Russian oil on the grounds that they can't get paid, possibly because of these financial sanctions and restrictions in the payment system, or because of the reputational hit. So if you look at the latest numbers, I think um, Russia is now producing something like uh, 10.4 million barrels of oil a day, down from a little over 11 before the invasion. So there has been a bit of an effect. There's also an effect on Russian production because uh, some supplies for the Russian oil industry haven't been available. There's also been the phenomenon of the Western companies that were invested in Russia and were producing in Russia, pulling out ExxonMobil, BP and Shell have all said they're doing that. So we've seen Russian exports kind of chipped away at the margin, but absolutely not stopped altogether. And the great bulk of Russian energy exports are continuing and still generating an enormous amount of foreign currency revenue for Russia every single day. One of the things that I struggle to understand, and I hope you can help me, is the timescales of response to an event like this, right? So this is a major geopolitical event. Obviously, it you know it reverberates far beyond the conflict zone, as terrible as the conflict is within, within Ukraine. When we think about self-sanctioning and sort of how this situation may evolve, I don't want to think yet in years, but over the next, let's say, the next 10 months, right? So a year into a conflict, which may still may well still be going on at that time. Would you expect to see, or do you have a, a view on things like self-sanctioning increasing over time? Or does the market allow for Russia and for traders in other countries to kind of work their way around whatever slight barriers have, have already been raised when it comes to energy trade? I think there's a difference between different markets. I think when you think about oil, certainly the evidence of past sanctions regimes is that it is very, very difficult to maintain an absolutely airtight or watertight seal around a country to stop its oil exports. That's certainly been true for Iran. And as I was saying, there are many countries in the world that will continue to buy Russian oil. It'll be very hard to persuade them not to do that. China, of course, is the largest oil importer in the world, not very much oil production of their own. They have a huge need for oil to power their economy. Same goes for India. A lot of other places in the world are oil importers. Everybody needs oil and they can't do without it. And in particular, if Russian oil is selling at these pretty big discounts to the international price of oil at a time when prices are generally pretty high, that's going to be very appealing to a lot of people. A lot of people are going to want to buy that cheap oil. So I think it's going to be very hard to stop Russian oil exports completely or even to any significant degree. I think that over time, starving the Russian oil industry of capital and of technology is going to have an effect that is going to degrade the country's ability to produce. And if you look at what's happened in Venezuela, for instance, where production has over 
the past 15 years or so declined very significantly because of international sanctions, the lack of access to international capital and technology. That's had a big impact on Venezuela over time. You could absolutely imagine the Russian oil industry going the same way over time. But you mentioned the time frame of 10 months. That doesn't really kick in within 10 months. That's over, That's a 10-year kind of phenomenon. So that, that'll be a thing to watch for there. In terms of gas, so gas is different because oil's a big liquid market and you produce a barrel of oil and it, it gets to a tanker and that tanker can go anywhere in the world. Once it's on the water, as they say, right. it can go anywhere and tankers can do clever things. They can switch off their transponders and they can meet other tankers in the middle of the night and transfer oil over and they can hang around off the coast of a country and let other littler ships load up and take the oil to shore and so on. So there's a lot of ways that oil can kind of be uh, slipping through the cracks of a sanctions regime. Gas is generally harder to do that with because on the whole, you need pipelines. You need some big expensive capital facility, either an LNG facility, which is a very expensive uh, bit of plant, big expensive LNG tankers, or you need pipelines. And everyone knows where the pipeline starts and where it ends. And so kind of gas smuggling, gas sanctions dodging is much harder to do. The big advantage that Russia has in the gas market, though, is, as I was saying earlier, Europe's complete dependence on Russian gas. Well, not complete dependence, but as I say, dependence on gas for a very significant proportion of its gas needs. Right. If you shut off Russian gas to Europe tomorrow, that's a catastrophic event for the European economy. You'd have to have rationing. Businesses would not be able to operate, particularly in energy-intensive sectors. There'd be real questions about whether the power system could keep going. Would you have to have blackouts? Would people be able to heat their homes in the winter and so on? It's not so bad over the summer when temperatures are going to be higher and you don't have that need for, for gas for heating to the same degree. But if you approach the winter in Europe without regular supplies of rationed gas, that puts the European economy, the people of Europe, in a really difficult position. And so that's why you'll often see German politicians in particular coming on the news and uh, talking about how they're opposed to the idea of an all-out energy embargo on Russia. And in particular, it's that issue of Europe's dependence on gas and Germany's dependence on gas. But Germany, but not by any means the only country, many other countries in Europe, Italy, uh, France to a degree, and others are also dependent on Russian gas. And they would be in a very bad position without it. Well, let's maybe speak about European energy strategy and how it might change and what we've already seen in the, in the wake of this conflict, right? So, so Europe is heavily dependent, overwhelmingly dependent on Russian gas in terms of its gas consumption. And there is now a very clear political imperative from the EU Commission, from many of the countries in, in Europe to so say, get off Russian oil and gas. As you say, it can't be done overnight. But it appears that a lot of European uh, countries and businesses are fixing to, to move relatively quickly to at least diversify their supply, if not get off Russian gas, oil and gas wholesale. When you look at the plans that have been published, are these realistic? Is, you know, when you think about the, the Repower EU plan, the sort of overwhelming European capture of, of the global LNG market is, is kind of how I, I think about the numbers there. Can you help us understand the context and what policymakers should be watching for? I think it is realistic, but it's a real stretch. It would require absolute political commitment and determination to carry it through to deliver, as you say, that Repair EU plan, which envisages Europe 
ending all imports of Russian energy by, well, the original plan was by 2030. Ministers are now, um, European ministers have been saying they think they can do it by 2027. But anyway, within that kind of period during this decade, the crucial things I think that people should be looking at are questions both about um, European energy imports, and in other words, finding other sources of imports that are not Russia, and also about domestic production and what they can do there, and also about demand. Those are the kind of the three things, you know, if you're trying to cut your imports of energy from Russia, the three levers you can pull. One is finding other sources of imports, one is producing more domestically, and the other is affecting demand. On the finding and other sources of imports, you had a nice phrase where you say the capturing global LNG. I mean, that's essentially what would have to happen is that LNG around the world is increasingly sold on flexible contracts and flows wherever prices are highest. And so if, if Europe wants to import more LNG and use that to displace Russian gas, then it has to pay for it. And that means outbidding Japan and China and Taiwan and all the other countries uh, in the world that are big LNG consumers. So that can be done, probably not going to be cheap. And if you look at the absolutely sky high gas prices that we've seen in Europe, and interestingly, the prices were sky high for gas in Europe even before the invasion. If you remember back in the second half of last year, prices were very high because just as uh, economies worldwide got going again after the pandemic. We had that period of intense competition between different countries in order to be able to secure those cargoes of LNG, and that led to prices being bid up very high both in Asia and in Europe. So you can get more gas, it has to come at a price. That is true for the next few years. Beyond that, then you can add additional supply, and there's talk about new LNG export plants being built in the US. Not a lot can be done in the short term. Basically, the US LNG plants that are in operation at the moment are maxed out now. They're producing as much as they can, and most of what they produce is currently going to Europe already. So there's not kind of an enormous amount more that the US can do in terms of helping meet European demand for gas. But over time, you can build new plants and they can export. I think there was a very, very rapid plant construction program, a plant called um, Calcasieu Pass recently got finished. I think that was 30 months from final investment decision to first gas being shipped. So two and a half years, that's generally considered very impressively quick in the industry, but maybe that could be done by other projects as well. So even if you pressed a button today on plants and said they can, they can get underway right now, you're still into you know, mid to late, more like late 2025, before they're delivering any gas to Europe. So these are definitely kind of longer term factors in terms of contributing to helping Europe. But that definitely can be done. And certainly there is scope, there's a lot of gas in the US, scope for production to rise quite significantly. There are plenty of sites, in particular on the Gulf of Mexico coast, that have been proposed for new LNG plants. So that's definitely the, something that can happen over time, but it will take time. And then raises questions, I will probably want to come on to this in a moment, but then raises some interesting and important questions about climate policy and how you kind of reconcile a big increase in US LNG exports and construction of a lot of new US LNG facilities with clearly wanting to shift in general away from fossil fuels to meet climate goals. But then we'll come on to that in a moment. But that is in terms of the immediate energy security demand or an immediate and kind of over the next 10 years energy security demand and in terms of meeting that European goal to get off Russian gas 
during this decade, definitely American LNG can play a part. Other things Europe can do, it can boost its domestic production. There's probably a little bit more that Europe can do in terms of traditional gas production out of the North Sea. The UK maybe can do a little bit more, get a bit more from Norway, which is a big uh, source of EU imports already and probably could do a bit more. Maybe get more out of the Netherlands. There's some debate over what is the outlook for gas production in the Netherlands, but possibly some more could be squeezed out there. So as a bit can be done. There's a lot of talk now about low-carbon gases, broadly speaking, in Europe, and what you can do with low-carbon gas to replace traditional gas. That repower plan had a very ambitious goal for renewable natural gas, with a very big increase in basically gas produced from waste, from landfill waste, from agricultural waste. They will ramp that up very fast. They've all, it also includes a ambitious target for hydrogen, talking about you know, rapid growth in hydrogen, in particular green hydrogen produced by electrolyzing water, taking advantage of cheap uh, wind and solar power to produce hydrogen, which you can then use with various modifications, but can be used for some of the, the uses that you use natural gas for at the moment. So those are things, again, which on a kind of a decade-long time frame can make a difference and help replace Russian imports. Those are fairly unproven technologies, though. People have not really tried to produce renewable gas at very large scale. And hydrogen is very new. Hydrogen is really renewable hydrogen. Green hydrogen is a tiny, tiny industry at the moment. It's got a lot of potential. We at Wood Mackenzie, we're very kind of optimistic about it, positive about it for the longer term. We think the costs are going to come down a lot over time as it gets to scale. Very, very expensive at the moment. It's very sort of uncompetitive. Even at current kind of wildly elevated natural gas prices, it's hard for hydrogen to compete right now. Hydrogen costs need to come down a lot to really make it economically viable against natural gas. So, but we think that will happen. But again, this is a kind of a future thing, and you're you're kind of taking quite a bit on trust. Then, if you think that this kind of unproven technology, certainly unproven at scale technology of hydrogen, is really going to be important. The final thing I wanted to highlight is arguably the most important, which is affecting demand, and that's the thing that really should be addressed, probably much more intensively than it is being addressed at the moment. But Obviously, the best gas molecule of all is the one you don't need to use. And so the extent to which you can push fuel efficiency, greater energy efficiency in buildings, greater efficiency for appliances and in the power sector, shifting away from gas heating towards heat pumps in particular, which you know, been a lot of talk about heat pumps in the last few weeks and entirely deservedly. Heat pumps are definitely a very important technology, could be used much more widely than they are are super efficient compared to other forms of heating. And if rolled out as a large scale across the building stock of Europe could make a very large difference to Europe's gas demand. So all of those kind of things are well worth doing. It has proved very difficult to improve energy efficiency. We, you know, countries have had initiatives on this and pushes on it for a long time. It always seems like one of those things. I always think the paradox of energy efficiency is people say this is such an obvious kind of win-win, right? That where if you improve efficiency, you improve energy security and you help the climate and you save money. It's a kind of a wonderful win-win-win. So, you know, that's a great thing. It means that everyone should do it. I conversely find that quite a pessimistic message. In other words, because if these are things you can do that are have such obvious benefits, but you don't do them, 
then there must be some pretty significant reasons why you're not doing them to do with institutional inertia, the way the economic incentives are set up, even human psychology in some cases, just people kind of miss the opportunities that are there. And actually that tells me that barriers to really improving energy efficiency in a significant way are hard to deal with, but I think they are well worth addressing because as I say, that in terms of when you think about what could really make a difference to European reliance on Russia, fixing the energy demand question is an important part of that. One also thinks that energy demand questions have important seasonal implications, right? So one of the big challenges with Europe is the the switch from summer, which is a lower energy consumption state to, to winter, which is a higher energy for heating and things. There's Their efficiency would make a big step. But I take your point well that if it seems so obvious and it's not happening, there might be a lot of really profound and deeply in, intertwined reasons for why it's not happening. Yeah, no, I think that, that's exactly right. I mean, you mentioned the, the seasonality in Europe. The other big thing to flag up there is just that question of renewable energy and renewables as part of the solution, which they absolutely are, and certainly investing in and developing more wind, solar, other renewables is going to be an important part of reducing reliance on imported gas. Definitely useful to do. But Europe does have some pretty big issues in terms of reliance on variable renewables. Something we saw last year when wind output was very disappointing. I think first nine months of last year, wind output was in Europe was 6% below what it had been the previous year, which is one of those phenomena which is still not really, I think, understood by people of what happened. The work we've been meteorologists are studying it and trying to work out what are the factors there that influenced wind speeds and strength over that period to mean that it was disappointing year for wind generation. Yeah, there's even some there's even some papers trying to figure out if this is a symptom of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. Yeah, quite quite possible that it is. So what we're learning from what happened last year um, is that wind generation is variable, not just day to day or week to week, which we knew about, but year to year. And so you do need the backup systems in place, which might be gas or might be something else. We don't know what it is at the moment, but you need to have something else to back up that renewable generation. And as has been much discussed, Europe also has the famous, I love this word, but the Dunkelflauter, as they call it in Germany, um, which you know about this, which is basically when it is dark and also still, you have dark still weather conditions, particularly in the winter, when skies are overcast, time of high pressure, you have very little wind. So solar and wind generation are both very low. And those kind of conditions can last for many days at a time. Two weeks is not at all uncommon. And so what you do in terms of managing that is very important. And clearly, gas is one solution to that problem. But if you want to get away from gas, it's more difficult. And we don't at the moment have the storage technology to handle that. Lithium-ion batteries are great for much shorter periods. You have grid storage there for two hours, maybe for four. It's fantastic for doing that kind of intraday shifting of renewable generation. Really not so good for interday or interweek shifting. And so there you are going to need some new technology probably. And there we are going to need maybe long duration storage. Maybe that's where hydrogen comes in. Maybe if you're 
using natural gas, it's renewable natural gas, which is essentially in a, a closed carbon loop, which you would call carbon neutral because it's uh, you're using gas that would otherwise just be uh, vented into the atmosphere from waste. So there are things that can be done, but we don't have those technologies yet in place to manage that issue. And so that's another really important thing that Europe's going to be grappling with. So when I watch people responding to the, the urgent crisis, we all know crisis can precipitate change. I think in Europe, we're seeing a real desire to accelerate energy transition along the line, the technological lines that you just talked about. But we're seeing a sort of bimodal discussion, one which is this crisis is evidence that energy security has been underrated and not given its due attention in favor of responses to climate change and energy transition. And another is this is evidence that we need to get it off fossil fuels and move to a renewable economy. Is there any there to that binary? And what's the state of the debate outside of Europe? There is something there, certainly, but I would be keen not to overstate it in that I think if you frame everything as accelerating or slowing the energy transition, that's definitely the wrong way to think about it. I think what we've seen this year in terms of the crisis in energy in terms of the shockwaves resulting from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's a reminder that as we pursue the energy transition, we have to do it in the right way. And we have to think about energy security as an integral part of the energy transition, just as much as decarbonization is. And so we have to think about, you know, what are the technologies? What are the policies? What are the strategies that are going to support energy security and enhance it and make sure we can continue to, to deliver supplies of reliable and affordable energy, which is absolutely essential and which is a non-negotiable for any government in the world, in any country. If you can't do that, you will not survive as a government. What can you do to make sure that you do continue to deliver those supplies while also reducing carbon? And there is a great deal, I think, that can be done to make progress simultaneously with security and with climate. So we talked about some of those technologies, renewable natural gas, hydrogen, definitely part of it. Nuclear is clearly absolutely critical one. It's clearly been disastrous for Germany. They're extremely short-sighted and ill-considered decision to shut down their nuclear plants has been really exposed as terrible idea. It's something that probably unfortunately looks like it's too late for them now to go back on. They're kind of committed. The plants already being shut down. The remaining ones that are still online, they're probably locked into closure at the end of the year. So it's probably too late for them. But that's certainly a, a lesson that other countries can learn and an example that people can know not to follow. And when you see France talking about ambitious terms about building new nuclear when you see the debate in the United States about nuclear looking a lot more positive now than it did a few years ago, I think those are very encouraging signs pointing towards a reassessment of the value of nuclear as reliable, low carbon generation. And I think the whole debate about energy demand as well is very positive in terms of looking for those win-win-win kind of technologies and policies that can actually reduce emissions, make energy more affordable, and make energy supplies more secure as well. And so I think there's a lot that can be done there. I mentioned heat pumps earlier. 
that's definitely one of the technologies that I think is going to be very important and certainly I would hope would be accelerated because of the crisis that we're seeing at the moment. I don't want to be totally Pollyanna-ish about this and suggest that everything is wonderful and we can all just get along and energy security and climate are always going to go hand in hand together. There are clearly some tensions. I think the example of US LNG exports to Europe is an area where there are unquestionably tensions. If you build more LNG export facilities in the US to meet urgent demand over the next 10 years, you're locking in infrastructure that will have an economic working life of 40 years or potentially more. And over that time, if you're going to be moving towards Paris climate goals or whatever, you're going to be wanting to use a lot less gas and you might not have need for those facilities anymore. So there are some genuine dilemmas there. And the question is, what can we do to move as quickly as possible on the right kinds of progress in the energy transition that helps support energy security at the same time, while maybe allowing for some decisions that are not going to be great for the energy transition to decarbonisation, but are going to provide essential energy that we're going to need for a while yet. And that is the, that's the balance to strike, I think. Hopefully that debate can kind of get away from that kind of simplistic binary of accelerate or slow down. I fully appreciate your call for a more nuanced set of thinking. We've been doing quite a bit of that here at CSIS. And one idea that I'd love your take on or your response to is that there isn't a fundamental contradiction between even measures which would support greater, let's say, oil and gas production from the US for the purpose of energy security, for enabling perhaps more economic pressure on Russia, particularly on oil, uh, and relieving you know, price at the pump considerations that are a real challenge for politicians, not just in the United States, but around the world, and the longer term climate agenda right? Climate response to cumulative greenhouse gas emissions. And so one of the ways that you might think about meeting this challenge is by designing medium and long-term policies, which will reduce cumulative greenhouse gas emissions, demand-side policies, technology substitution, financial policies that will allow the use of greater renewables or lower carbon fossil fuels, such as gas in, in developing countries, at the same time, you're you're sort of putting in measures to deal with short-term volatility and the real challenges associated with this conflict. What are the benchmarks you think we should look for? And how do you baseline cumulative greenhouse gas emissions? I think the question of the carbon budget and what do we need to do in terms of emissions in order to achieve the Paris goals or just in general to keep global warming to manageable levels, that's all pretty well understood, right? We, we know what we have to do. I mean, you probably read the um, IPCC Working Group 3 report from the, the sixth assessment report out a couple of weeks ago, which set out very clearly the approach to mitigation and the technologies that are available for mitigation and what needs to be done to get to those Paris goals. I think that's fairly well understood. I think, in a sense, the tricky thing is, uh, is translating that understanding into practical reality in terms of actually implementing in policy. So what I think about a lot and what I think really ought to be the focus here is what do you do to buy support for the things that need to be done? What can be done? And you mentioned I mean, a great example, right? Gasoline prices in the US at the moment, very difficult issue causing real hardship for people. And there's a lot of answers that people have been coming up with that are really not helpful at all, right? People say, oh, well, everyone should have an EV. And then if you've got an EV, you don't need to worry about gasoline prices. I mean, yes, but people who are 
struggling to put $20 of gas in the tank, I'm not going to be able to go out and buy a $40,000 EV. People say, well, you know, look at Europe, look how great their public transit is, and everyone lives in a more kind of compact way. And, you know, I mean, yes, again, probably true. There's some big issues with land use in America, but it's a big country. People are spread out all over the place. People apparently like to be spread out. You can't wave a magic wand and make everyone live in compact communities like they do in Europe. Certainly, there are things you could do with zoning and planning permission, all that kind of thing, which can encourage denser living. But again, it doesn't help in the short term, not going to make a difference overnight. So there will be times when you do have to take some decisions that unfortunately don't really advance climate goals. You are going to have to do something to relieve the pain that people are feeling because of high gasoline prices. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to survive as a government. And, so, and that, that's, that's true in the United States. It's true in, in democracies. It's true in uh, autocracies as well. You know, And it's true in places where people come out on the streets and riot over fuel prices, which they have been doing in a few parts of the world already, and are likely to do in many more places if, if fuel prices stay where they are. So I think it's totally justifiable to be using some short-term expedients. And then you've got to think about what are the right ways to design them so they have kind of the most limited adverse impacts. And so you don't kind of lock in policies that increase emissions permanently. Right. But you do have to do something. So, yeah, so short-term volume. I mean, it seems like we've seen on the U.S. side of things, one of the things that's very interesting to me is this crisis has precipitated massive policy changes in Europe. I don't think we've seen the fine, we haven't seen the end of that conversation, but we've seen the beginning of, I think, a really profound one. In the U.S., it feels we're a little bit stuck in first gear, right? We came into this crisis, the Biden administration had a lot of climate ambition. The Build Back Better package in the U.S. Congress was already stalled, but was set to be the largest spending package for clean energy that the U.S. had done and, and or conceived of. And that was going to be our principal climate strategy for the next five years, decade, probably. We haven't seen the conversation evolve given what has happened already. And we've seen the Biden administration try to use tools to keep prices lower as I'm here, I'm referencing releases of the strategic from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, maybe some, you know, some sort of badgering of industry to like, hey, pick it up. From your assessment, what are the things that can be done on the US production side? I mean, we talked US is a major energy exporter. We we started our conversation with Russia being a a major energy player. So too is the US. And in the midst of global energy crisis, we've seen very limited changes in public policy. So as much as we might want to shout at OPEC or at Russia, the US also you know, might need to start thinking a little bit differently about its role in the global energy market. And that might beg policy responses. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think obviously one of the things this speaks to is dysfunction in the US system of government and in the way the administration works and the way Congress works and kind of the great difficulty that exists apparently in reaching some kind of agreement to take positive policy steps. Another thing just to throw into your list is the administration's uh, increased use of E15, 15% ethanol in gasoline, which just seems like a very short-sighted counterproductive measure in all kinds of ways. But they're desperate and they're grasping at straws and they're kind of pulling either pulling every lever they can think of, even when on some occasions those levers don't really do anything to help. So that's not a very encouraging outlook. And I do think 
that is has some quite kind of adverse implications for the US political system in general. I think in principle, you could see some very positive steps being taken. And this is an idea that's been kind of rumbling around. And maybe perhaps we'll see enough agreement in the administration and in Congress to get it over the line. But a deal on energy that really does try and push what we've been talking about here, that combination of measures that enhance energy security and address climate, cut emissions, also help with affordability and provide some short-term relief for some of the immediate problems. You would think it ought to be possible to do that kind of a deal and something that says, well, we're going to back increased US LNG exports and support those at the same time as supporting increased investment in wind and solar power to take some of the pressure off natural gas in US power generation uh, industry, and also to provide lower cost sources of electricity, help with people's bills, and also support for storage to help manage a grid with more wind and solar power on it, support for EVs to help offset upward pressure on oil demand and to help people as much as possible get to a position where they don't have to worry about gasoline prices. Pull all those things together, that would be a very compelling package, I think. That would be something which really would mark a genuine step forward in terms of US energy policy and would really help with both energy security and with climate. Can it happen? I'm not sure. Neither am I. I think certainly the moment of opportunity has presented itself. You know, what you described is some segments of the clean energy tax credits from Build Back Better. What would you think about on the production side, right? Like, what do we do to help in the near term? And here, you know, energy security means bringing more to market. What do we do in the near term? What are the things that are really going to make a difference when the popular understanding is that U.S. energy companies are happy with large financial returns, their investors are happy with large financial returns. And, you know, we're still in a place where the United States doesn't quite understand its role as a major energy power when it's also a major energy consumer. I think, again, I'd want to draw a distinction between gas and oil. I think on gas, when companies are thinking about making investments in LNG export facilities that are going to have lifespans in the decades, a sort of a signal from the government, the government's going to be supportive, and this is something that will be, the approvals they need will be fast-tracked, and that the administration won't turn around very rapidly and say, actually, we've changed our minds you're not going to be allowed to operate these facilities anymore. And obviously, it's hard for any administration to bind a future administration, but just a signal that they will remain supportive and perhaps some kind of legal protections as well. I think that would really help with investment in those gas facilities. And I think that is something that the administration could really play a role in supporting. In terms of oil, as you say, oil's a funny business, really, because you'll sometimes hear people in, I mean, not even really so much in the industry. You'll hear people in politics sometimes say, oh, this administration's been terribly anti-oil. They've taken on lots of anti-oil policies, and therefore that's why oil production has been weak and hasn't responded despite these high prices. It's not really true. If you look at what the administration has done in terms of oil, there's been some very minor kind of nips and tucks at the edges. There was a slowdown in permits for drilling on federal land which lasted about a couple of months, things have not been at all significant in terms of policy being aimed at suppressing oil production. I think maybe there's been some of the mood music has been important, some of the rhetoric perhaps around the speed of the energy transition, getting away from oil. Some of that has possibly had an influence. 
as you say, the crucial thing that's really restricting US oil production at the moment is that oil companies are often making a lot of money and their investors are very happy about that. And the investors want to see that cash return to them. The US tight oil industry has been an enormous capital sink for about 15 years. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been poured into it for no return. And investors are saying, well, hey, now it's our turn. We want to get something out of this. We want share buybacks. We want dividends. We want these companies to pay down their debts before they add more rigs, uh, stepping up their drilling programs, increasing their production. That's something which is very hard for the government to intervene in. That's a freely chosen decision by a whole lot of private companies responding to the incentives they're set by private investors. It is possible that if you change the mood music a bit and you say, well, yes, oil is going to have a continued long-term role in the US economy and in the global economy, then that might encourage some investors to think, well, maybe we should be happier about these companies investing for the longer term. So at the margin, you could maybe make a difference. But I don't think it's uh, something really that uh, is particularly susceptible to the administration's control. And I do think that's one of the reasons why they're going for all these kind of short-term measures like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve release, like allowing more use of E15. They're kind of desperate. Well, and I, I would only add that I think they a lot of people are still working under the binary that you helpfully disabuse us of, right? That responding to immediate energy security needs somehow contradicts the climate agenda when really, you know, <laughs> you, you'd think that particularly climate people would would understand the, the difference between weather and climate, right? The short term and the long term. But we all project our own priors onto, onto these new challenges to close. U.S. is feeling this energy crisis in its own way. But the U.S. and the EU, when it comes to security and support for Ukraine in, in this conflict, have been in very tight lockstep, very coordinated, responding to this challenge. And, and I think there's a palpable sense that it's renewed the transatlantic partnership from a time when it was really pressured. We haven't yet seen that in energy, right, as we were formulating a response. There's an agreement around higher LNG cargoes, but we haven't yet seen, I think, the full scale of potential cooperation of the EU and the US on responding to this moment with a sort of a dual package on energy security and, and climate. If such a thing were to happen, what do you think it would need to include? As you say, we've seen a few moves towards it already. There was a lot of very grand talk about a Marshall Plan for Energy. I think Jamie Dimon was talking about this the other day. You've heard that kind of rhetoric flying around, what it's actually amounted to in terms of agreements so far between the US and the EU over LNG exports is not very substantive. That said, I do think LNG has got to be a crucial part of it. The US has an enormous amount of gas. It's the world's largest producer of natural gas. Russia is the number two producer. Europe's very reliant on Russian gas. These facts seem very overwhelming. It feels like you have to be able to put two and two together to see what is the natural conclusion if Europe wants to stop using Russian gas. And US gas is probably going to be a bit more expensive because it costs money to liquefy it and put it in a ship and transport it across the Atlantic and regasify it at the other end. But if you're determined to get off Russian gas, then the US is one of the obviously critical suppliers that can provide more. And you know, there will be a couple of others, probably Qatar is going to be important as well, but maybe some places in Africa and so on. But the US is definitely one of the critical ones. So you've got to see more done on that. And I think it's absolutely possible also to make the case for US LNG as at least 
in the short term for a period, a climate benefit as well. Because what you do if you ship more US gas to Europe is you make it possible for Europe to get off coal more quickly. I mean, of course, that's one of the other things we've seen as Russian gas supplies into Europe have been throttled back a little bit. And as European customers have been looking for alternatives to Russian gas, well, what are the alternatives? Well, one of the very, very obvious ones is to use more coal. And so we saw some European countries burning really a lot more coal last year. And I know there is a lively debate over the numbers. I personally think it's very convincing. I think anyone who's really properly looked at the numbers is clear that if you take natural gas produced in the US, ship it to Europe, regasify it, burn it in a power plant, that is clearly a emissions benefit compared to burning coal. I don't find plausible any of the numbers that, that purport to show different conclusions and actually say, oh, you know, coal turns out to be better. I think that's just wrong. And that's that's so, before the EPA regulations for methane emissions from oil and gas production in the United States are in effect. Exactly. And as you say, EPA re- regulations, companies setting their own goals as well. Companies across the US oil and gas industry are driving down their own emissions, driving down methane leakage and so on. So whatever advantage US energy has over coal at the moment, that is clearly going to increase over time. So that's got to be one important part of it. The other big missing piece, I think, is to think about then what Europe and the US can do in terms of shared effort on zero carbon energy, essentially. And that is something where in nuclear, in hydrogen, maybe in carbon capture, in storage, maybe in renewables of some kinds, there ought to be much more scope for the US and Europe to work together. One of the other kind of lurking issues in all this is that we've been talking all this time about energy security and vulnerability to Russia because of Russia's dominance of hydrocarbon supplies in the world. It's a very large position as a supplier of, uh, of hydrocarbons. In a lot of clean energy technologies, it's China that is the dominant supplier. China has manufacturing capacity for about two-thirds of the world's solar panels, about 85% of the world's uh, capacity for making battery systems. China's been locking up supply chains for the raw materials and the processing used to make batteries. So there's an old saying in energy that yesterday's solution is today's problem and today's solution is tomorrow's problem. We may find we are exchanging one set of vulnerabilities for another if you move away from oil and gas towards uh, solar and batteries, you're exchanging your reliance on Russia for your reliance on China. It's not exactly analogous because, just to take an example, if you lose your supply of solar panels, that's a less immediately urgent issue than losing your supply of gas. But there are some similarities. And so as part of this kind of new focus and interest in energy security that people have got, the move towards developing supply chains for clean energy in Europe and the US is definitely gaining a bit of momentum. We saw that, for instance, the other day with um, President Biden invoking the Defense Production Act when he was talking about trying to boost supplies of uh, battery raw materials in the US. So this is something which is starting to happen. I think it is definitely the case that more could be done in terms of cooperation between Europe and the US, European companies and American companies working together to develop those technologies and to provide a real base of knowledge and expertise, and in some cases, manufacturing capability 
that's not in China. And when you think about what does the new Marshall Plan for Energy look like, I think that clean energy component should be a very important part of it. And it might be more two-way than the original Marshall Plan was, right? There's a lot of European expertise on clean energy deployment that, that we could probably benefit from here in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. And we're seeing that, for instance, in something like offshore wind, where you're seeing a lot of European companies coming over here, Equinor, Ersted, BP, Shell, developing offshore wind in the US and, and really bringing a lot of um, skills and capabilities to the US market, which is a very positive development, I think. And then conversely, perhaps on other things like EVs, you have Tesla going to, to Germany and helping develop the EV industry over there. So, and which of course, to be fair, they're doing that in their own way because VW is also developing a big range of EVs and its own EVs have been successful so far. So those kind of um, international investments are very valuable, I think, and should definitely be encouraged. Well, Ed, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I've, I've, I've learned a ton and I'm sure that our audience is, is going to benefit from your wisdom. If they want to f- keep following you. Where should they look? Um, well, you can find me at the Wood McKenzie website, woodmac.com. I'm on Twitter at Ed underscore Crooks. And also we have our own podcast, The Energy Gang. So look out for that wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it's a fine example of an excellent energy podcast when we strive to emulate as best we can. Ed, thanks a lot. Really appreciate the time. Thanks to Ed and Joseph for helping us make sense of the complicated dynamics in the energy markets right now. You can follow them both on Twitter for more regular insights. You can also find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy for more updates. And as always, thanks for listening.